Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 35, The Doomsday Machine. into the fiery, gaping maw that is Star Trek. You've reached Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Commodore Ken Ray, although I'm not feeling good about that. Each week we point our high-energy beam at another episode, break it down into rubble, and see what's left. And we use that as fuel to tell us what are the morals, messages, and meanings hidden within the stories. This week we're talking about the Doomsday Machine. And Ken, you didn't like that I gave you a promotion? You're Commodore, dude. Commodores are jerks. To a man. Well, I, I, Commodore Mendez, was it Mendez? Yeah. He was yeah. okay. He was okay. But but generally speaking, at least in the first couple of seasons of Star Trek, uh, Commodores and Ambassadors, total jerks. Deckers, I would call them. <laughs> we, we have a listener, I can't remember who exactly, who pointed out that maybe because Kirk is just constantly doing things like breaking the prime directive that maybe he needs a jerk bureaucrat every now and then maybe he needs the odd ambassador or commodore to come on and say like hey kirk why don't you you know tone it down a little you know i wonder if it's actually the opposite i wonder if to sort of you know keep morale up on a ship every Mm -hmm. now and then they have to bring on somebody who is worse than the captain (laughs) <laughs> because, you know, whoever's below decks, right, whoever's in engineering or in sub-engineering, whoever, like, yeah. you know, whose place is, like, a Jeffrey's tube, like, you know, who that's, like, where he lives, that guy may actually hate even the best captain in Starfleet. Yeah, true. Right? Well, so occasionally that. you have to bring somebody on, like Commodore Decker, to remind you how much worse being on a starship could be. <laughs> wow. That's a really complicated way of keeping morale up but I, <laughs> Ken Ray, that's good uh hey so this week we were talking about the doomsday machine we're talking about a planet killing device that is going around doing it what what it does best killing planets and uh trying to take some starships along with it yes we are mm-hmm. I, I, and, I got nothing else for that i'm sorry oh, you're right you you summed it up perfectly john well thank you thank you and you know what else i'm going to sum up for you right now i have no idea Trivia. Oh, I, you know, I really should have known. I, I would have thought you would have right there with me. Yeah. Um, well, hey, first and foremost, you know, uh, uh, two of the big, big kind of elephants in the room or uh, giant white whales in the room, uh, this owes a big debt of gratitude to Moby Dick, uh, the obsessive story of Captain Ahab. A little bit of a parallel to uh, Commodore Matt Decker. So um, if you're a fan or familiar with Moby Dick, you will see that written throughout the Doomsday Machine. Um, Another cool thing that I have to point out here, it's just so obvious that Matt Decker is Will Decker's father. Will Decker, of course, Stephen Collins' character in Star Trek motion picture. Well, he's not officially, but he totally is, but he's not. But no, really, seriously, he is. Um, it's not written in any script and it's not in there on screen in any way, but Susan Sackett, who wrote the making of Star Trek, the motion picture and is referencing the writer's notes for Star Trek, the motion picture and referencing Gene's notes for Star Trek, the motion picture says, yeah, that this is how that character was conceived was the son of Commodore Matt Decker. So at least we know that it, that it has, as far as unofficial things go, this is about as official as it can get. So I like to think about that connection for those two characters. Now, it's been a while since I've seen Star Trek The Motion Picture. I guess it's eh, probably been two, two and a half years since the last time I watched it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do we gain anything from that? Or is that just, oh, well, that's neat. Uh, we don't gain anything in particular from it. I mean, it, when we get around to doing Star Trek The Motion Picture on our show, it might be interesting to see if there are some character parallels there. Um, and I believe that we do get a hint that uh, Will Decker's family at least have a connection to Starfleet, but we don't explore it any more than that. All right. Because that's not really a great pedigree. <laughs> well, I guess maybe. Hey, he he I made guess, it all the way to Commodore. Well, I mean, there is that. And, of course, yeah. you know, the official we'll, – we'll get in a moment to – well, I don't want to spo- – well, hopefully you've watched the episode already. I mean, <laughs> it's reported that he died in the line of duty. 
It is reported. It's not yes. reported. He died in the line of duty right after being a gigantic jerk. <laughs> right, right, right. Hey, uh, remember what happened at the 1968 Hugo Awards where uh, everything nominated for Best Dramatic Series was Star Trek? Well, this one, too. Uh, this episode was nominated along with all those other episodes for Best Dramatic Series. It did not win. City on the Edge of Forever, lest you forgot, actually won. Um, James Doohan loved this episode. DC Fontana kind of hated it. And uh, fans mostly are in the love it camp, uh, but there are a few holdouts who, who don't. Um, Norman Spinrad, the writer of this episode, he was not too crazy about the actual model of the Doomsday Machine, but... Maybe we can talk about that on our wrap-up, how we feel about that model. And speaking of models, remember how we talked about in Galileo 7, the AMT Corporation uh, struck that deal to be able to produce Star Trek models, and then they were building the Galileo 7 prop. You know, they designed and built that full-size prop. Well, mm -hmm. the Constellation, the starship that we see in this episode, is actually an off-the-shelf AMT model kit that they bought and bashed up and made it look like it had been destroyed by, oh, I don't know, a, a planet-eating doomsday machine. Well, wait a minute. It was initially. Yes. I mean, the one that we're seeing now in the remastered, probably not. Well, that's a very good point. When they did the remaster, and that's kind of one of the crowning achievements of the HD remaster CGI stuff, is they really went above and beyond to get, breathe new life into that ship. So depending on which version you're watching, you're either seeing an off-the-shelf AMT model kit from 1967 or you're seeing the height of CGI work uh, from its time. Um, another thing to point out here is some really iconic music. Um, it, it's hard to miss that relentless horn swell as the planet killer approaches. Uh, it, it became one of, those, uh, one of those hallmarks of Star Trek TV soundtrack music and did you also hear over there <laughs> you pointed that out you said you, you heard strains of over there yeah every time every time the transporter works and spoiler alert there are a couple of times where you're not sure every time the transporter works they're they're playing a little strain of over there which i think is it's it's fun that's yeah. that's, a, that's a fun yeah. little uh that's a, a, a fun little thing to do with the music i dig it Doomsday Machine, sounds like me on a Monday morning without my first cup of coffee. Am I right, carbon-based life forms? Prologue. Someone who is definitely not Lieutenant Uhura is sitting at communications and tells Kirk that a faint distress call has been picked up. The only thing she can make out from it is Constellation, Commodore Matt Decker's ship. Working their way through one planetary system and the next, the Enterprise just keeps finding rubble where there should be, um, planets. Way off in the distance, though, there's the constellation looking every bit like the Enterprise, but badly damaged. Kind of like when I tried to build Enterprise model kits when I was eight. Something on the loose is destroying planets and starships. Let's call this a red alert before heading to the opening credits. Act 1. There's just enough life support on the Constellation and a little bit of power. Kirk gathers a team to go investigate. Scotty and his group is looking at the engine room while Kirk and McCoy are trying to make sense out of what happened. There's no one on board, but it doesn't look like anyone left in a hurry. Things are in terrible shape, though. Maybe they all beamed away? Not likely, reports Spock from the Enterprise. The two nearby planets would not support human life. Searching for the auxiliary control room, our landing party finds Commodore Matt Decker slumped over and incoherent. McCoy gives him an injection to bring him around well enough to explain what happened. They came to investigate the planets that were there, but they were attacked. Decker got his crew to abandon ship to the third planet while he stayed behind and the transporter got knocked out. Kirk reminds Decker that there is no third planet. Yeah, that's the work of the enemy they're facing. Spock has been examining the records of the Constellation and has determined that the weapon that has been destroying everything is actually automated. It's a robotic weapon designed to obliterate any planet in its way. Oh, and by the way, that thing came from another galaxy, but should be heading right through the most heavily populated area of our own galaxy. McCoy is a little perplexed, but Kirk lays down the 411, 
this planet killer is a doomsday machine. It's so powerful, it's only meant as a bluff during war. Doesn't matter who built it or when, but this is bad news. Kind of like finding a ticking atomic bomb in your backyard. Kirk decides to stay behind on the Constellation, but he sends McCoy and Decker back to the Enterprise. Just as they arrive, the planet killer is back, and it's aiming right for them. You're doomed right after this commercial break. Act 2. Spock says, let's play this cool. We can outmaneuver it for now, but we better get that landing party back on board the Enterprise. Famous last words, the transporter just got knocked out, and Lieutenant Nat Uhura reports that communications are down too. On board the Constellation, Kirk orders Scotty to work on impulse engines. Kirk works on the view screen to see what's going on. Back on board the Enterprise, things are just great. They're back up to speed, and the planet killer has pulled away. Whoa, are we so lucky. You know who's not lucky? The people of the Rigel system for whom the planet killer is now headed. Spock says we're going to circle around and meet up with the Constellation again. Decker gets all power trippy and says, no, we're going to follow that thing right now and attack it before it gets to Rigel. Spock says that's not such a good idea. I mean, remember when you were a shattered shell of a human a few minutes ago because you lost your last battle and killed your crew? Oh, no, he didn't. Decker relieves Spock of command. No, seriously, he just did that. Time to turn this ship around and go attack the giant thing. Back on the Constellation, Kirk has the view screen working enough to see what's happening. Hey, that's his ship getting all trigger-happy on the planet killer. It's having no effect, though. As soon as the planet killer swings around, like a horse swatting his tail at an annoying fly, it hits the Enterprise with a huge energy blast. The tractor beam comes on, and the Enterprise is starting to get sucked in. Decker is all ready for this. He thinks this is his chance to fire point-blank into the machine, but Spock tells him such a mission would be suicide. If he proceeds, a suicidal mission would be evidence that Decker is unfit for command, and Spock will relieve him. Oh, Spock, you and your logic. Decker gives the order to veer off, but it's too late. The Enterprise is about to be eaten by the planet killer. Act 3. Kirk is still watching all this happen from the Constellation. Scotty has impulse engines working just enough that Kirk can pull the Constellation in a little closer to the planet killer and fire phasers. It's distracting enough that the Enterprise can break free of the tractor beam, and now Decker is ready to go back in and fight. Again. Really, man, just give it a rest for like two seconds, okay? Communications are back up enough for ship-to-ship communication. When Kirk calls, it's Decker who answers, explaining that he is in command and that he is going to go back in for a fight. Kirk then orders Spock to relieve Decker and take back command of the Enterprise. Decker is a little uh, reluctant, but he concedes once he realizes that Spock is not bluffing about bringing in security. Okay, so he'll leave, but as soon as no one can see him, Decker is going to totally fight that security guard, knock him out, and run loose on the Enterprise. Things are really going to work out now. Back on the Constellation, Kirk and McCoy are making some more repair progress. They're just happy to know that Spock is now in control and heading back around to pick him up. Decker is just fine as well. Crazed and obsessed as ever, he sneaks into a hangar bay to steal a shuttle. Before they can do anything about it, that shuttle is making its way directly to the planet killer. Decker answers a call from the Enterprise. He announces his plans to pilot the smaller ship directly into the gaping maw of the planet killer. He's been prepared with the prospect of death ever since he lost his own crew. And that's exactly what he does. Spock makes the grim announcement, he's gone. Act 4. Decker is gone, gone, gone. And he was Kirk's friend, someone he looked up to. This is bad. But maybe there's a silver lining in here. That weapon's power fluxed a little when the shuttle impacted with it. Hmm. Transporters are back online enough to get the rest of the landing party back to the Enterprise, but Scotty and Kirk stay behind to rig up a little something special for the planet killer. They're going to set a fuse based on Decker's little experiment with the shuttlecraft. A whole starship hitting the planet killer with her engines overloading should do the trick. Great plan. We'll set a timer. Kirk will stay on board the Constellation and pilot thing right into the gaping mouth of the planet killer and the Enterprise will beam him back just in time, right? Right, guys? I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Okay, everything is set. Scotty beams back to the Enterprise, and all Kirk needs to do is push the button 
to set the detonator and beam back on board. Oh, but wait. The transporter is now doing something it's not supposed to. Namely, there's a little explosion and puff of smoke shooting out of each transporter pad. Kirk pushes the button, and he's totally ready. Like, right now, to be beamed back. Side note, the last thing you want to hear when you need to beam back to your ship because you just set a detonator is that there's a problem with the transporter. Kirk frantically calls Spock. Spock frantically but coolly and logically calls Scotty. Scotty frantically fixes stuff. And just in the nick of time, Kirk gets beamed back aboard as we see the constellation get swallowed by the planet eater. Oh, but this doesn't go down like a cool and frosty shuttlecraft. No, the exploding constellation disables the huge, scary planet eater. In the safety of his own ship, Kirk and Spock talk about how they just use an old-style explosive to defeat a newfangled superweapon. Kirk wonders if there may be more of these out there in the universe. Let's hope not. I hate to correct you, but it was actually Spock that wondered if there were more out there. And and there's a reason that I'm, that's a, it's an important distinction, but we'll get to it later. Sure, sure. All right. All right hey, can I can I just start things off by saying, uh, oh my God, where the hell is Uhura? Yeah, you can if you want to. I, okay, I, 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 I've kind of gotten used to it though. Occasionally, like just there won't be a bones one week, no bones, no bones about it one week, and then the next <laughs> week right. there's no Scotty. Oh, okay, I don't know yeah. if that's I don't know if that's what is that like contractual or something? Is that like an actor thing? I, it, it could be. I mean, it, it, actually, we got a question about that from a listener, and there could be a million reasons for that. Um, it, just that the writer didn't write that, although in this, in the original document about uh, the planet Eater, um, a.k.a. the Doomsday Machine, they actually named Lieutenant Uhura, but uh, she doesn't actually show up in this episode. But I, for some reason, because you always expect to see her on the bridge always delivering that information for me this one just stuck out like crazy yeah i don't know why it bothered me more than others well especially because over the past i guess two or three episodes we've heard people say no uhura you're like you're the linchpin of this whole thing yeah yeah and you know now the linchpin's gone no wonder things start breaking up (laughs) right right exactly couldn't be part of it hey by the way uh i i guess accidentally i should have said spoiler alert last week i i Mm -hmm. joked that the title the doomsday machine was like what they said in um, Doctor Strangelove. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's not like it. It's, it's it. Totally. Yeah, what I, they I have a feeling that, you know, that's, I mean, it's a much better title than The Planet Eater. Yeah. And I have a feeling, I mean, it, you know, it is, I mean, Kirk basically gives you the moral of not only this episode, or not the moral, but, you know, the, the sort of a, the, the driving force of this episode. And the driving force of Dr. Strangelove in his one, you know, proclamation that this is a doomsday machine. He does. He does. Yeah. It's very convenient when they just spell it out in the middle of the episode. Kind of crazy, too, that um, it's not Spock who says that. Mm-hmm. Spock was the one that brought us the idea of the happy pill back on, um, you know, this side of paradise. But it's Kirk who remembers that, yeah. uh, you know, that, that there were these doomsday machines. I got to be honest. I'm, I'm Kirk knew a little too much this episode. Yeah, it, it, it's one of those things where it's like, okay, we have this line of exposition, right. uh, of explanation. Who are we going to give it to? Well, we might as well give it to the guy who's in charge. But yeah, I, I agree. It, it doesn't necessarily ring true. Well, it, it, it wasn't just that. I mean, like, okay, so he's heard of a doomsday machine, but Bones hasn't because Bones is a doctor, not a mechanic, which I'm assuming means that Bones had never heard of a starship before he was on one. <laughs> right. But okay, so I mean, so so Kirk has this idea when Spock is the one who is really sort of every now and then likes to say, eh, you know, you humans are awfully violent and terrible and you used to be barbarians. But it's, yeah. but it's Kirk who's going to come out with this one. And then later in the episode, he's like, hey, Spock, am I right in thinking that I can blow this ship up with exactly this much force? And it turns out he's off by like, you know, 0.85, I think. But I mean, right. he knows how many whatevers, you know, the ship is going to blow up with. And then uh, for his final trick, he's going to tell you exactly how much change you have in your pocket. I mean, yeah. there's a reason that he's got a whole crew. Like maybe he, maybe he should have said to Spock, hey, how much force do you think I could get out of blowing this thing up? Rather right. than, I know I would get at least this much force, so uh, is that enough to destroy the ship? He, he's sort of like James Bond in that respect. He knows everything, and then he'll pick out a great wine for you. Well, I take it back then. If he'll, if he'll get me a, a glass of wine, forget it. Yeah. <laughs> I, right. I have no complaints. Yes. Um, there's a lot that I liked about that. I think William Wyndham is great 
as yes. Commodore Becker. And it's kind of funny if you look at some of the behind-the-scenes materials and later interviews, he actually says that he wasn't aware of the Moby Dick thing. He, he was just sort of playing Decker crazy and obsessed. And it's like, yeah, obsessed, like in Moby Dick, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, uh, but, but he plays it great. I think he's fantastic. And, you know, I go back to uh, Gary Lockwood as Gary Mitchell. Like, he seems very at home in this universe. Like, you believe that he is this crusty, old, Bogart-like character out there in space. Mm -hmm. Hey, you want to get us in trouble a little bit like we did on The Cage? No, why don't you do that? Okay. (laughs) There's a little throwaway line in here. A little throwaway line where uh, Commodore Durkin says, they say there's no devil, Jim. And again, it's sort of like it's just a thing. Like in this century, in this period, we kind of understand that there's no devil, that this is a mythological thing. But no, but now we're faced with a real threat that is so overwhelming, so powerful. We have no way to conceive of it except to say that it is mythological in its scope. So, um, yeah, I like that. I thought, again, it was a throwaway, but it, it tells you something about where we are coming from. That's so interesting because I know so many Christians who don't believe in the devil, which is weird because I don't yeah, understand how you can do to. that. Why? Well, th- that yeah. was always my impression. But I know a lot of people are like, no, 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 that was something that used to be. Oh, I still believe in, you know, I still believe in the resurrected Christ, but I don't mm-hmm. believe in the devil. And I'm, okay. I'm always like, well, then. So it's funny. I didn't actually pick up on that line because I'm like, yeah, I know a lot of people who are like, you know, go to church every mm-hmm. Sunday and don't believe in the devil. Oh, interesting. Which I'm, you know. Okay. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not, I don't, oh, yeah. Okay. Great. I was going to stay out of it. I was going to stay out of it. And now the letters are going to become to me. Oh, I heard the derisive laugh. Okay. Uh, Right. And uh, other cool things we learned, Vulcans never bluff. Can I get a hell yeah? That that was just, it was delivered so great. (laughs) Can I get a whoop whoop? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, Yeah. uh, Other, other things that we liked about this, you know, I mentioned the transporter malfunction in the story recap. And it's one of those that kind of like always at the worst moment, the transporter malfunctions, like that. It seems like a very unreliable piece of technology. Yeah. Uh, But I have to say for as many times as I've seen this episode, when, when that first little explosion goes off, um, I, I kind of jumped a little bit in my seat. I was like, oh, wait, it's not just that they can't beam them back. The thing's blowing up. This is really cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought it was great. <laughs> I will say this does reinforce both um, Dr. McCoy and Dr. Pulaski's belief that people really shouldn't be transporting around. Yeah, right. I mean, there's something right. spooky enough about the idea that it's going to take you apart and put you back together. And then, of course, you can get into the whole thing of is it actually putting you back together or is it just recreating you someplace else? Um, but the idea that there's stuff under your feet that might blow up if this goes wrong. So, like, even if it does take you apart successfully and yeah. put you back together successfully, there is still a chance that the floor underneath you is going to blow up. <laughs> right, right. Now, now, I will say we're in the starship. We're yeah. light years from, you know, anything like help. Sure. So, I mean, you're already, I mean, you're already living on the edge. Even if you are, you know, somebody who's like, I don't cotton the transporters. I mean, you're still willing to take quite a bit of risk. Right, right. But I, I, I think I might be with them. Maybe a shuttlecraft would be a better way to get from point A to point B. You may be right. And of course, yeah. then you're just strapping yourself to a couple of engines, too. You know, maybe space, maybe spacefaring is not for me, John. Maybe not. Hey, oh, 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 you want to know what I found hilarious, by the way? I just, I have to point this out. Um, that moment where Kirk says to Scotty, okay, you got the detonator rigged up. You're going to beam back over to the Enterprise. I'm going to stay here and set off the detonator. And, and what does Scotty say? Good luck. Uh, okay, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> any other script, any <laughs> other show, it would have been, no, Captain, you can't stay behind. Let me be the one. No, no, no. I'm ordering <laughs> you to get back. But Scotty, I Scotty, I am right there with you. Okay, I'll see you later. I'll be back on the Enterprise watching this blow up. <laughs> well, I mean, one could argue, I suppose, that Scotty actually knows where his talents lie. I mean, so yeah, so true. I mean, they are now rigging this ship to be destroyed. So 
There's, so Kirk will be much better at pushing that button than well, Scotty ever would be. Well, I'm just saying there's really nothing more for Scotty to do here. There is, in fact, a mostly functioning ship over there that they're going to want to keep functioning, and we know that Scotty is the guy for that. I was actually a little bothered that, you know, he, he so he transports over, and there's a problem, and there's not already somebody on fixing that. I mean, he runs yeah, from, right. the, from the transporter pad to the Jeffrey's tube where the thing is yeah. to fix it. And I'm thinking, yeah. you know, maybe he should be training somebody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe there should be somebody ready to step up. There, maybe there should be a lot of people there to yeah. work on that. Maybe more than one. <laughs> After hearing more about it, I would no longer say that the Doomsday Machine and I have anything in common, aside from our both being machines. Please, do not hold that against me. So I think, John, uh, thanks to this episode, I'm 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 going to try to get a new phrase going. This could even end up on a t-shirt one day, who knows. (laughs) Uh, Don't be a decker. Is, oh. is is kind of my or you know other ways that you want to put that if you want to put the uh, put that that way um he's um yeah he's got issues he does <laughs> yeah, he's been through a lot he has been through a lot but he needs to go ahead and come to terms with that yeah now granted he's been through a lot very recently right but at some point, I mean, you would hope that in training a starship captain, and there aren't many of them at this point in, uh, in Starfleet's history, um, in training a starship captain, you would hope that you would cover little things like, I don't know, let's, let's just do a little brainstorming. Let's say you lose your ship and your entire crew. Mm-hmm. Is now the best time for you to take over another starship? No. <laughs> Discuss. Yeah. <laughs> There, I mean, there are a number of things that I mean that he does wrong, and uh, and and enough that I think I want to coin a phrase for it. Don't be a decker. Mm-hmm. That's it. Now you know his son does sort of redeem that uh, years sure. later, as we discussed. But I, I, there were just there were just a few things here that I mean there is the obsessiveness, like the uh, the Moby Dick uh, thing that you talked about, the obsessiveness there. Um. So it seems like one of the things that we should pick up from him right away is maybe don't wed yourself to, you know, one preconceived notion or plan of action. He, oh, sure. He thought initially that destroying the doomsday machine would be a good idea. And in fairness, if you can destroy a doomsday machine, probably not a bad thing to do. Maybe don't try to do it the exact same way again, though. Well, there you go. Yeah. Big, big mistake just trying to repeat the same course of action and expecting a different result. Exactly. <laughs> Decker could, could uh, learn something from the friends of Bill W., I believe you're saying. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I would say is, uh, you know, one of the things that we pick up from him right away, maybe uh, forgive yourself for your mistakes. You know? I mean, I, I, think it, I think it's like the fact that he lost his ship and that he lost his crew may be what's driving him to so relentlessly pursue killing the Doomsday Machine the exact same way again. But again, maybe is now now is not the time to make that decision. And certainly in a time of self-recrimination is not the time to, let's say, risk somebody else's ship and somebody else's crew. Well, that, that's uh, let's just say that for all the good qualities that Matt Decker had as mm-hmm. a captain, there are certain things that he's missing, like uh, uh, flexibility, uh, dealing yeah. with ambiguity, <laughs> working with others. Yep. You know, these are all things that... That he needs to go back to training for. Yes, yes. Uh, listening, as you say, uh, maybe taking into account the the, the um, ideas or the suggestions that other people might have. Mm-hmm. Your first in command is not just for getting you coffee. He may actually have an idea. Right, right. Exactly. One worth listening to. I just, you know, just some thoughts. Yeah. I don't want to read his book on management. No, <laughs> no, you do not. And I certainly don't want to read his book on crisis management. <laughs> no, no, because it, it, in the modern day, it would just end with like, you know, slamming a car into the wall. <laughs> yeah. much. More, faster, harder. Yeah. The, uh, the uh, Matt Decker, Matt Decker, not Kurt Decker, the Matt Decker uh, yes. mode of management. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Kurt Decker. Though, because yeah. uh, in the document that we found for this episode, the original story treatment, um, Kurt Decker, Kurt was the original name for this character. But there's something else very interesting here. Um, 
The original concept of this is that the doomsday machine, the planet eater, was actually a living organism. Hmm. Say a naturally occurring space thing. Oh, well, now, wait a minute. Do we know for certain that it was naturally occurring? Oh, well, that's a good point. Now, I mean, it, we, we don't know where it came from. We don't know, it, it, we don't know it, it, its background. We just know that it is a living thing. Okay. So, now, whether or not it had been engineered or by whom, I mean, like I said in the, uh, uh, the story outline, kind of all of that is academic at, at that point. But we don't, we're not given any additional detail in the original outline. Um, but I thought that was very interesting because um, they made, I think, totally the right choice by now making this a device, a weapon that was built by presumably another race at war with somebody else in another galaxy, they say. And now it's just sort of on the loose and carrying out its prime directive, which is to destroy everything in sight. Well, he didn't say, though, that they were actually at war with anyone else. I mean, the idea of the doomsday machine, um, the idea of mutually assured destruction, uh, certainly in our arms race here in the States, or the idea of the, or in, in, I'm sorry, on our planet Earth in our timeline, our, the one that we actually exist in, or the idea of the doomsday machine in um, Dr. Strangelove. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, it's a deterrent. And yeah. and that's what Kirk really explains the doomsday machine as being here as well. I mean, he he... He is assuming a whole heck of a lot about this other galaxy, actually, because he's like, oh, you know what this is? This is a doomsday machine uh, meant to be a deterrent, never meant to be used. Something obviously went wrong. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, to say that, you know, it was somebody that was at war, it it almost seems like you'd be saying quite the contrary. It's somebody who didn't want to be at war. Now, what happened? Well, it is a Cold War device. Yes. At least from our understanding and from Kirk's understanding. Yes. Well, Kirk's assumptions of it and our understanding of it. But, I mean, it is is an excellent – it's an excellent uh, stand-in for where we were in 1968, where we were through 1980. And then – uh, 89? Yeah, I guess. I guess so. Um, and I guess you could even go ahead and say it actually, it, you could even go ahead and say that it actually draws out to today because let's say that they solved whatever problems they had, right? Mm-hmm. That the doomsday machine worked for that other galaxy and everything was fine. But the problem is there is still this doomsday machine out there that, you know, either should be dealt with or may one day deal with you, which is certainly something that we see uh, – that we see discussed today as far as the whole idea of dirty bombs and, you know, <laughs> fallen regimes suddenly, you know, selling off weapons to the highest bidder. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. The idea of uh, the machine being self-sustaining is very interesting though. I mean, assuming the doomsday machine scenario and assuming, you know, that it is a stand in for the arms race that was happening on earth in the uh, late sixties and onward, mm-hmm. this is a thing that is not going to stop on its own. Um, now the analogy only goes so far. I, I would I would say the best way to stop nuclear proliferation is not blowing up the nuclear bombs, which right. is pretty much what Kirk ends up doing. But of course, he's got you know the benefit of space and a uh, solar system that's already been destroyed. Yeah, like here, if we were to say, so how are we going to deal with what's left of our doomsday machines? Maybe not blowing them up. Yeah, <laughs> but you know the idea that you know okay, so this is this thing that we built, and you know we've been building it, and so they built it, and so then we have to keep building up. The idea of thinking differently about it, um, using the established machinery to stop the killing machines, that's not a bad message. I, I don't think it's – I mean, sadly, again, you can't be as simple about it as, well, let's just, let's just blow them up. Well, there, there is a little bit of built-in irony here that, you, you know, sure, this is a 1960s TV show and you've got this great analogy about the arms race during the Cold War. But in the Star Trek universe, you're talking about us – having weapons of enormously more power than we have now. I mean, yeah, but it, it, Kirk's saying, like, uh, you know, back in the day, we used to have these H-bombs, and that was crazy to build those. Not like our modern-day photon torpedoes that we shoot <laughs> every week, <laughs> you know? Right. So, right. so it's like, yeah, the, the, the only weapon that's bad is the next biggest one that you don't have. Well, I mean, I guess the photon torpedoes do give you sort of the ability of a surgical strike, though, right? I mean, yeah, H- well, sure, sure. Yeah. H-bomb is kind of like, I mean, that was that, that, that's a bigger deal. Well, surgical like, strike that'll take out a huge portion of whatever you're firing it at. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that amputation counts as surgical strike. I mean, that's, yeah. it's going to take off a leg. Yeah. Yeah. 
but, but let's think about this. Like, if the Doomsday Machine, if the Planet Eater had been a living organism, then you'd have a different kind of Star Trek story here because you and I would probably say, well, okay, what is the ability to understand, to reason, to figure this thing out? But no, at least we can kind of drop the pretense of that and say this is a weapon on autopilot. This is going around destroying stuff. So the point of the show then is we have to destroy this before it destroys us. At least that, that's the drama of the show. Yeah. Now, you know? I, my, my feeling, honestly, was finally, uh, you know, an enemy that we can feel 100% good about disabling. Yes, yes. This is one of the so, first ones that we've had in 35 episodes. This may be the first, like, enemy, in quotes, that we can just feel great about killing. Yeah. Because it is just a machine with very little in the way of higher function. In fact, I was wondering at one point, okay, well, this is smart enough to know that it needs to break up the Constellation and the Enterprise because they create too much of a threat. But then when I was watching it again, uh, Spock says, oh, so if there's a certain energy signature within a certain radius of the ship, then it's programmed to automatically do this. There is absolutely no thought to this machine at all, which is awesome. That's fantastic because we don't have to worry about that. Now, had it been a living thing – um, well, there's no point. I mean, we're de- debating a, an episode that doesn't exist at this point. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but we are talking about the – what I'm saying is a really good change if you go back and read that uh, that document. Oh, yeah. Where our listeners out there have access to it. There's not a lot that is very different from the from the beats to the action of the story. But when you change a minor thing like that and then you specifically inject the uh, the analogy about the modern-day arms race, you get to then tell a very different story. And I think that's a really cool choice on, the, on behalf of the production to do that. Yes. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a fun, action-filled story anyway, but now we get to change the point of view a little bit. There is an interesting idea, though, and it kind of goes back to what I was saying about uh, the idea of the machine being self-sustaining. I understand the temptation to make it a living thing because mm-hmm. the arms race at the time in the late 60s would have to have felt like a giant beast. I mean, it, at some point, that machine comes something that nobody is controlling, it seems, or at least it feels that way. And certainly yeah. that would be the way that it was being sold. It was like, well, we have a missile. Okay, well, now they have two missiles. Well, crap, now we need five. Oh, now they've got seven. Ah, you know what I mean? Yep. So I do get the temptation to make it a living thing. But you're right. It was a much better, much better choice to make it a, to make it a, a, a stupid machine that, that people <laughs> built for reasons that may have seemed good at the time, but turns out maybe we wanted to rethink that. Yeah. There were a couple of other things I wanted to hit um, before we get to the uh, end. Mm-hmm. It's not really a message, but I found it interesting that when Decker is kind of breaking down, mm-hmm. talking about his crew, and you know when they were on the planet wanting to beam back to the constellation and, and Decker is unable to do that, Kurt almost goes to comfort him. He almost goes to like, like put a hand on his shoulder or something. Mm. But then he seems to, he seems to contemplate that and, and he thinks better of it for some reason. Mm. And I don't know. It kind of goes along with something else that I was wondering. And again, it's not one of the messages, morals, meanings. It's not one of the big things, but there's something about that and something about Spock's willingness to follow the org chart. <laughs> I mean, because you can see that had Spock not let Decker take control in the first place, crew was with him. Yeah. There is a question there in everybody's mind about what's going to happen. And when Spock decides he's going to, you know, eh, by the book, this guy outranks me. So I'm going to go ahead and stand back and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do everything that I can by the rules and, 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 and register my displeasure and register my you know, concerns and, and make my suggestions, but I'm not going to do anything that's going to break any rules. There's, I, I don't know, there's something weird. For some reason in my head, those two things are tied together. Yeah, but, but here's the thing. I, I, Spock is always two steps ahead. And, and to me, that scene was Spock giving the guy just enough rope to hang himself. And he knew that... McCoy not having the evidence of relieving Decker for uh, being psychologically unfit. Spock knew that all he had to do was hang out on the bridge for five more minutes and see what Decker was going to do to find exactly the breaking point to say, oh, I'm relieving you of duty because you just did this. No, I disagree. Really? Yeah. Spock knew it was suicide to go up against the doomsday machine. He said as much to Decker. 
I mean, mm-hmm. and they, but they keep doing it and they keep doing it and they keep doing it. It is not until, it's not until Kirk calls up and says, take over the ship that, that Spock's like, okay, well, I can do that. Well, no, he can't because still on the org chart, Kirk is being outranked. He is outranked. Yeah. By yeah. Decker. Yeah. But for some reason, when Kirk comes on and says, eh, no, go ahead and do that anyway. That gives Spock the strength to do what he really should have done in the first place. Except, of course, then we would have the issue of a court-martial had they had they survived it and had, uh, you know, Decker actually survived it as well. But, you oh, know, but we, we've been through court-martials before. We know, you, we know you can always get off. Yeah, they go <laughs> – they, they, they really – not a big deal. Yeah. Um, I will say uh, – <laughs> I'm sorry. I've had a song in my head all day. There's a, there's a song. I can't remember who it is that sings it, but it's often credited to Johnny Cash called I Walk the Line Revisited. Okay, And it's sort of a revisiting of the uh, Johnny Cash classic, I Walk the Line. Kind of a good song. Check it out on Spotify if you want to. I Walk the Line revisited. So there. We're going to rewalk the line. And who mourns for Adonai? Yeah. There was the troubling line. Right. Mankind has no need for gods. We find the one quite sufficient. And that has nothing to do with this episode, except at the very end. And this is why I said earlier that there's a distinction when, when I said, you know, you said Kirk was wondering if there were more of those machines out there. It's actually Spock who says that because Spock at the end of it says, um, yeah, I wonder if there are more machines like this out there. To which Kirk replies, I hope not. I found one quite sufficient. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All yes. right. Is this coincidence? Or is this getting back at whoever made them put that line and who mourned for Adonai? Uh, you know what? I, that's a mystery. To me, it's coincidence, but you can chalk it up however you like. Um, well, I, I think it's a great you – know, for anything that is unsettling to Kirk, <laughs> for him just to say, yep, one in the universe is quite enough. All right. I, really? I, I'm fine. I'm fine with that. Yeah, I'm fine with it being coincidence. All but right. Well, I will I'm also you, fine with it being a dig. I will tell you in my head, it's a revenge fantasy. Awesome. <laughs> in my head, it is somebody saying, oh, yeah, you like me putting that line in? Well, guess what's just as destructive? So you know what I'm going to do? <laughs> I don't know. I, and maybe, I, you know, I don't know if anybody is still around to ask. I don't know if there is a scrawled note someplace, but I like thinking... Yeah. <laughs> I like thinking that somebody said, no, nah, no, nah, it'll be fine. Just throw that line in. Don't worry about it. Nobody, <laughs> nobody's even going to pick up on it. Just go. An ancient artifact from another galaxy brings gloom, doom, and doom. But does it also bring messages worth hearing today? Comes the time every week where we uh, ask ourselves and each other a few questions about the messages, morals, and meanings, and whether this whole thing stands the test of time. I don't want to ask you, John, because I almost said this about 20 minutes ago or however many minutes ago it was now. This episode is awesome. This is a very well-directed episode. What's weird is there's only one part of this episode that bothers me. Mm. DeForest Kelly usually brings a performance that I can really get behind. He saws the air with his hands thus in this episode when he's when he's making his case to spock and you can't see how i'm waving my arms here but you can probably hear it because i'm shaking them that much get a lot of that from deforest kelly aside from that and really that is the only thing that i can fault in the direction of this episode um decker seems genuinely racked with guilt and pain except you know when he's being a jerk but then he seems genuinely to be a jerk Unlike yep. in Taste of Armageddon, Ambassador Ferris was a jerk, but I kind of felt like he was written to be a jerk. Like he just kept, you know, showing up and like tapping his watch like a jerk, you know, and he would show up every now and then and say, don't forget, I'm a jerk. Whereas, you know, Decker, Decker is like, I mean, he is, that actor is there for this part. It's sort of like yep. you said earlier, how, how, uh, how comfortable um, Gary, blah, 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 Gary Lockwood. Gary yeah. Lockwood was. Thank you very much. That has to do, I think, with direction. Yeah. Um, something that uh, our pal Rod mentioned in one of the notes that he sent us, the fight between Decker and Montgomery is a better yeah. fight than you get in a lot of episodes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, when the Constellation gets rocked in Act 3, even that somehow seems more real than a lot of the times that the um, 
that, that you'll see a starship get rocked and everybody sort of leans to the left all of a sudden. Right. They actually throw themselves on the constellation. And, yeah. I, and I, I watched it and I was like, did they tilt the set? I mean, it just feels more real. Yeah. And when Kirk thinks he might not make it back to the Enterprise as the constellation heads into the planet eater, um, there's a, there's a, it's not like, I mean, he, there's an, a, sort of a cavalier attitude about it, but not the same one that you always get from William Shatner in these situations. I mean, there's a, there's a, he's, he's being cool, but there is an edge of nervousness. Yeah, we, we've had a few really good moments of that from Shatner in recent episodes where he gets to underplay the moment. Yeah. And it's really effective. Um, I agree with everything you said. I, I just loved everything about this. I loved everything that you pointed out. Um, I, there's something about the Decker character that is tough and really believable. Mm-hmm. And then for some reason is even more believable in his snapped state. You know, because the problem is you, it, everything is played for heightened drama here. You know, uh, every it, the stakes are incredibly high. And if they if they don't make the right move, both ships are going to be destroyed. They're all going to die. So everything's heightened, heightened, heightened. His craziness is heightened, heightened, heightened. But it still works, you know, and that's kind of dangerous ground to be upon as an actor. But William Wyndham plays it beautifully. I love that we get some new sets here. Well, at least some redress of sets. You know, we see parts of the constellation that we have not seen on the Enterprise, mm-hmm. which is very cool. And I love it in its distressed state. Um, what can you say about the effects? You know, like I mentioned earlier, some people either love, some people either hate the planet eater. Um, I'll, give it, I'll give them this. You know, they went with a totally unconventional look for that thing. The kind of cornucopia-looking giant rock-like thing out there in space. Huge. They did a good job of playing with scale to make it look absolutely gigantic compared to the starships that it is going after. Um, So thumbs up on that. But, uh, okay, you know, does that necessarily hold up? Uh, They they did a good job of trying to modernize that a little bit for the HD remaster. Um, So that's the only element of this that you have to go, well, okay, it is what it is. But as an episode, the directing, the editing, uh, the writing, everything just really comes together to make it exciting. Mm-hmm. So here, here, yes and yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes and yes, as a matter of fact. But the difficult part is, what's the message? And if there is one, does it hold up? Well, I think there are several. I mean, there's no, it's, as we so often say, there's not a... Maybe there is, actually. I was going to say there's no Save the Whales message. There's no you see, Timmy. But, I mean, it is explained to us explicitly by Kirk (laughs) that this is about the arms race and about how stupid that was. Except, of course, he's saying it from the middle of it. Yeah. Literally from the middle of it, now that I think about it. If we assume that that started in 1945 with uh, with, uh, dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we assume it ends in 89 with the fall of the Soviet Union, then... Literally from the middle of that arms race, Kirk is saying, boy, was that dumb. Yeah. So does that message hold up? I think we don't think about it quite that same way anymore because we are 20 years past that in theory. Although, you know, from where you and I are recording in space and time, uh, we do have North Korea every now and then going, hey, you know, it'd be really cool. (laughs) And I mean, and certainly there are other powers that are capable of doing that, but yeah, I mean, for now, I I think we would say we're probably happier at least that that one time that we did that is sort of behind us. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, it, it is awfully convenient that Kirk just spells out the message of the show right in the middle. Um, yeah, you know, and yeah, we we can talk about that being a bit forced and uh, that he would necessarily know that, and you know, whatever, but. It all goes back to that that idea of making the weapon a constructed thing that was designed in an arms race. So that's what drives home the message. That's what makes the message work. Yeah. And and I think it's really good. You know, yeah, we're not in the Cold War that we had in the middle of the 20th century anymore, but we still build weapons. We still have weapons that could cause incredible, devastating destruction. 
Um, yeah, that's a so, diff- that's a different thing, though. I mean, this was not arguing against weapons. This was arguing against mutually assured destruction. I think sure. this was arguing but, against weapons that were made to do nothing but obliterate everything. I mean, yeah. we make yeah. weapons today, and you know, sure, there's part of me that wishes we can't, but there's also part of me that understands why, or wish, wishes we didn't. But there's also part of me that understands why we do. Of course. You can course. argue about whether we yeah. have to, but, I mean, I get why we do that. Uh, mutually assured destruction, though, that's just, that's just, that's just, I hope we've decided it was silly. I want to go back and actually correct myself on one thing or maybe change my argument on one thing. Mm-hmm. I said that it bothered me that Kirk was the one who knew this whole thing. But had that whole speech come from Spock, mm-hmm. it would have been sanctimonious. It would have been it would have been the preachy Vulcan again talking about what bad, you know, how bad we are. The fact that this is something that is so ingrained in humanity. Yeah. That Spock can look at it. I mean, that Kirk can look at it and go, oh, you know what this is? This is when we were idiots. Remember when we were idiots? Yeah, this is what that is. Oh, yeah, we were such idiots. Well, you know, by that, it, it could have just as easily come from McCoy. Because McCoy is very often the one to point out human foibles. Yeah, well, it could be McCoy, except he's a doctor, not a mechanic. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, but guy's got a breadth of knowledge. <laughs> Apparently not, because, you know, he says right there, no, I haven't heard of your machine. What am I, somebody who's heard of machines? Um, of course, the other, the other message I think that does hold up, don't be a Decker. Yeah. Yeah, or at least the bad kind. Don't be, you know, don't don't get so obsessed that you can't, you know, try not to kill everybody you know. Well, there's something there about, you know, forgiving yourself yeah. for mistakes. And, and yep. Kirk is, they're all trying to talk him down. Like, it wasn't your fault and you, you did the right things. But, uh, okay, he, he's, he's, shall we say, a little agitated. He's maybe not ready to hear that message. Yeah, I, so. I would say that is true. Yeah, when yeah. Kirk says we're better with you than without you. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure the Enterprise crew would have agreed. Right. I'm just not sure they did, but I don't know. Anyway, that's that's kind of what we thought. Should we ask people what they thought, John? Indeed, we would love to hear from you. You can reach out to us at Facebook, Skype, and Twitter, all at the handle Mission Log Pod. You can even call us at 323-522-5641. You can email us at missionlog at roddenberry.com. And please don't forget to check out our home on the internet, missionlogpodcast.com. Remember, we may use your comments in a future episode of Mission Log. Join us again next week when we will put Cat's Paw in the Mission Log. Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. The guys wanted to make this a two-part episode, but, I found the one quite sufficient. See what I did there? and transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.